Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Wow Ergonomics. It's Friday, it's midday, which is uh, the best day of the week, week for a lot of you. Um, you know, it's been a cold one this week. I'm, I'm feeling the cold already. Uh, what about you, Slim? Uh, definitely ice on cars. Um, I was out there scraping the cars most days this week, and I was talking to someone, a colleague up in Yorkshire, and she's got a load of snow. So um, it's on its way, I think. It's it on is. its way. Oh, we've had a few lakes here today uh, down mm. in uh, Somerset. So um, talking about uh, the cold weather, um, our guest today, who's about to come in, wonderful Rachel, um, has been or is about to be busy this afternoon, she tells me, uh, putting fleeces on trees. So we've got to find out about that. So let's uh, let's introduce her. Hi, Rachel. Hi, and Harley's decided to join in as well. So, <laughs> oh, there you oh, go. Excellent. Do it. Do introduce yourself to the to the masses. Uh, say so, who you are and what it is that you do. Hi, I'm Rachel. I'm a coach, mindset coach, and leadership executive leadership coach. I've worked in healthcare for many years. If I tell you how many, you'll give give away my age, but over twenty five. So, um. 20 of those I've been on leadership boards like national leadership boards so my passion for coaching really is I've, I've done all sorts through my career so teaching and stuff but coaching is more about helping people find their own magic whereas teaching is like dictating a syllabus you know and people have got to pass so yeah that's what kind of made me go off into coaching on my own rather than obviously I worked in the NHS for years and I've been free for five <laughs> say free because it is like a life sentence it's like a for years I didn't see daylight like the hospital pharmacy was and they always seem to be underground so like you can work all day and like if you go in at seven in the morning come out at seven at night you don't know what weather is at all or what season it is so yeah when I um was liberated it was quite an experience to uh see wow. that we have seasons in the UK. Yeah, I, expect, I expect it was. I expect it was. Um, you were you were saying just before we came on that uh, you you've got palm trees. Is that right? And you're you need to protect. Yeah. Them so I, the I live in, on the on the coast, and um, I wanted to create like a tropical garden. Like there's a whole thing about tropical gardens in the UK, and like getting the right plants. So I've got some palms that I've been sort of about three years now since lockdown. I really started doing my garden, probably like everyone, but. Um, yeah, I've got some that they can live to minus five degrees, but it's better to cover them up. So we've got snow forecast, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> to protect my go. babies. One of them was about 250 pounds when I brought it. And in the garden centre now, I think it probably cost you well over 500 pounds to buy it. So you can imagine like having a few of those. And then if you lost them last year, lots of people lost their whole gardens because we got it was so cold wasn't it compared to normal uh, uh, absolutely i must admit when when we first bought this house here there was a palm tree in the garden there's no no longer a palm tree in the garden uh and we had a, a very cold year one year with snow and it completely killed it that was it just completely they, they just rot um yeah they're really so these fleece things they're like got um special material they're not fleecy like a fleece jumper they've got like uh, they're white material, but they've got like tiny, tiny holes to let the light in. But I have been told, yeah, if and this is the thing, if it's like snowy for three days and it stops, I've got to climb back up the ladder, pull them off. Because like you said, if they get frozen underneath, 
and then defrost, then it rots the centre. So it's kind of like a, it's like having children, but obviously they don't talk back to you. <laughs> <laughs> but you got to look oh, after fan them. Fantastic. It, in terms of your experience in, in the healthcare sector, uh, one of the things we talk a lot about on this programme, and perhaps you can maybe uh, give us kind of your experience of this and, and, and then maybe where it fits in with your coaching now. We see a lot of people working in silos in the kind of healthcare sector and like a, a sort of a lack of a joined up approach did, did you kind of yeah. see that without, without you know? Yeah, well, um, I don't work with them anymore, so I can, I can give my honest say what views. You like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's um, the whole thing's fragmented. So, like, even, you know, like communication within hospital and then primary care, which is your GPs and your, like, little cottage hospitals and things like that. The communication between them is awful. And then you've got, like, community pharmacy as well. And um probably about 10 years ago now I started working on a project called the summary care record which I don't know if you know about but patients records where you could be able to access it but the community yes. pharmacist should be able to as well and I mean all of these things taken so long to implement but they actually don't actually they still like pharmacists have to get permission yet the person who's giving you your medicines wouldn't you rather that they knew your whole history so I think it's it shows you like drugs, last prescribed drugs, your allergies, and a few other things, but it doesn't give you access to everything. Whereas wouldn't you rather, as the patient, think the pharmacist could check your last blood results or your last scan to see if the drugs you're taking are the right drugs for you? Because ultimately, pharmacists are expert in medicines. They did like five, six years, whereas a doctor in a medical degree, I think it's like three months that they spend on actually learning about medicines directly. So, well, doctors are the ones you want to prescribe you the medicines. Pharmacists are the ones you want to be giving you the advice on how to take them safely. But the other sort of a biggest example is that social care and healthcare funding are separate. That's a huge, huge thing. So, like, if you've got, like where I live, a high demographic of elderly patients and they're in hospital, you know, they've it's cold, icy, fallen over, broken your hip, you're actually back up on your feet within a few days and you need rehab, but there aren't any little rehab hospitals anymore. So then you end up being in hospital for months and months. And one of the blocks is that there's there's no nursing home places for people or social services don't want to pay for them or there aren't enough carers. So those people could all go home, but they can't. And then they end up in hospital and they lose that independence that they had. Because all of a sudden, you know, if you're like my 80-year-old uncle, used to do everything for himself, you know, shopping, cooking after my auntie died, still rode his bike, still potted around in his shed. And then you imagine going into hospital for three months and you're not even allowed to make your own breakfast. You know, you might be allowed to make a cup of tea if you're lucky in the day room, but everything's taken away from you. So then when you go home, it's like, how do you look after yourself after sort of, some sort of long-term illness or life-changing event. Yeah, you wouldn't want to be, like, rehabilitated in hospital if you could be rehabilitated at home. And actually, it's better for you to have, say, like, occupational therapists that come into your home and say, right, does your sofa need to be raised so you can sit on it? You know, 
do we need to give you some adaptation so you can cook for yourself for example instead of taking away everyone's independence totally then they end up needing carers coming in three or four times a day because we often hear though rachel isn't it though is is that you know i mean is it is it down to money simply is it down to organization you often hear comments is it a lack of people with commercial experience in the nhs around how to procure is it is it a combination of all those different factors because it can't sit you know it, it, yes it's got to be down to money and funding but if it's not organized and there aren't the right level of commercial people in there that surely has an impact is the money being spent unwisely incorrectly does that factor into all of the all of the issues that there are i mean it can do because in individual hospitals can choose how they spend their budgets to a certain extent like you can mm. look at which services you provide so here where i live it's a district hospital so we've got to provide pretty much all the services whereas mm. if you're in a city so like when i worked in bournemouth for example you've got quite a few hospitals around you so it makes sense for some to be specialist centers for wallabies and some to focus on other things so like you'd have a cancer center and a um like um, neurosurgery for example they wouldn't all be in the same place necessarily because mm. they're all high cost um services and so the the way the, with the funding and things but NHS procurement is like a really it's almost like a separate the supply chain and the procurement in in the NHS is really actually quite good and like the negotiations for prices and things like that but then when you think we came out of Europe we have nice, got some okay. we have got companies in the UK that make like generic drugs and things but we do now have to outsource things from abroad but um, if you think there's so many things in the NHS that you have to procure it's like shopping for your household but for a whole hospital mm. so you know like even things like tea coffee the food that you give the patients the food that you give the staff clean what cleaning products you use like there's just so many things that you've got to procure. So like it is, it's a whole service in itself. Just as I was leaving, so about five years ago, they were looking at quite a few of the hospitals are like looking at making hubs together. So if you're um, say like in the Southwest, I am having a, using that collaborative approach to have better buying power and buying almost hiring a warehouse. So you could buy, you know, hundred thousand um, cleaning cloths, and keep mm. them in the warehouse and then share the cost rather than buying like 10 packets each as of when you need them if that makes sense like so the consortium. Kind of, yeah so the people you know there are there are really innovative approaches to saving as much money as possible and people want to try and put it into patient care but then you have there's so many times like when i was um leading a department like where one day you're told you've got to save 30% of your staffing budget this year <laughs> and you have to figure out that, how that's going to happen. And I'm coaching, I'm working with a lady now who's in that same situation. Mm. And then on by the next week, it'll be there's a pot of government funding for emergency winter pressures, for example. And you have to bid and get funding to employ some more staff. And so one hand they're telling you you've got to spend ages trying to think how you're going to cut staff how you're going to get rid of them but still deliver the same service and then on the other hand there's suddenly pots of money appear but they're always for limited times but you can imagine the morale of staff if you've 
only employ people on fixed short-time contracts because you've got no security, have you? And like, again, if it's somewhere rural and high cost where I live, who wants to relocate the whole family, the whole house for a 12-month contract? So the way they've approached it down in the southwest is that um, the big teaching hospitals and the smaller hospitals have joined together and the doctors have to rotate through all of them. So it's not an option. But, you know, like people would come here, be a doctor, work here till they retire. That's it. No fresh blood. Um, sort of one in, one out, literally. And I remember, remember like where I started in the pharmacy here, it was like there wasn't ever any scope for promotion until somebody literally retired or died because people worked in that job for life. And obviously in like London, for example, it, you you want to keep learning new things as a pharmacist, doctor, nurse. You know, you want to explore the different um, specialties to find the one that you're really good at and the one that you enjoy. So having all the hospitals there within sort of walking distance of each other, literally, means you can sort of hop from one to the next. And also, we don't have a job for life anymore, do we? That's kind of pretty old school, you know, that you leave school, you go to college, go to uni, get a job and you stay there till you retire, that's kind of, it's not really the thing now, is it? No, that has definitely, that's definitely changed. Do we see the same issue in our, in the sector of sort of ergonomics as well, Stephen, to some extent? I mean, that it's sort of a, a chase for figures as opposed to a proper allocation of, funds in the right places uh, and, and, and that leads to sort of a, a race to the bottom in terms of provision yeah i think so and, and it's interesting what rachel was saying there because I, i'm thinking of my experience of going into nhs um locations with some of our reseller partners so i will get asked occasionally rachel as we're a manufacturer can i go into some hospitals and demonstrate some of our products that could potentially help and what was really interesting was is when i went in there is a number of them said their biggest challenge was actually sickness so their focus is was actually for the people we met um was actually they they didn't want to necessarily buy and this is this is really good actually they didn't necessarily want to buy the lowest cost product what they wanted was they wanted to get the product to the user that would help alleviate the issues and the sickness and they felt their biggest challenge was actually sickness so it's an interesting one and i, and I look at this as a, as a manufacturer of product that is sort of medium to top end in terms of where we where we are functionality and price-wise, we don't produce the lowest cost product out there. But what was really interesting was there's a lot of interest in our product in the NHS because they felt if they could tackle sickness, then actually investing in the right kit was more important than necessarily what Graham said, racing it to the bottom and buying the cheapest product. They needed the product that was going to get people back into work and really alleviating and addressing the sort of the sickness that they were experiencing across their departments. Yeah, so in terms of staffing in the NHS, sickness, absence and um, turnaround are the biggest costs mm. because obviously recruitment costs a lot of money. Probably aware of that yourselves, you know, like if someone leaves and sort of backfill and all the bump that goes with it. Uh, and then, yeah, sickness and nursing, for example, I think one of the biggest sickness causes in nurses is back obviously back injuries because lifting mm. patients etc so 
And then that equally applies to people who are office-based in the NHS. You know, if you've got a crap 20-pound chair and you're sat yeah. on it eight hours a day, 40 hours a week or 60 hours mm. a week, and, you know, your position's not right. So actually, you know, like risk assessments in terms of ergonomics, like you said, are computers mm. at the right height, um, having standing computers for people, having different options for different people, because... Again, you've got people at all different stages of their life working in your department. So you might have some sprightly 20-year-olds and then you've got some people getting on a bit like me with the bones of a 90-year-old who kind of need, <laughs> you know, need different things. So having all your computers sit down stations, for example, even in pharmacy, like typing labels, you know, some people want to sit down and type. Other people want to stand up and, you know, get some exercise type thing. So, yeah, all of that's really important. And and for patients as well, like, you know, your beds and things like that. You know, you can't have a bed if you're going to get pressure sores. You need to have beds that can be lifted up and down. You need to have lifting equipment. It's literally so. And all of those come under procurement, don't they? Because like you said, if you think about it the same way we think about clothes, it's cost per wear, isn't it? So the mm. cheapest thing might not be the most um, beneficial to you actually sometimes buying something that's made better and it's going to last longer is actually kind of the best investment. And when you have limited money, you want to make sure you invest the best way, the best way possible, because it's, you know, that's the other thing you're saying about budgets. All the budgets are separate. So you'll have a staffing budget. You'll have a budget for stationery, for example. Mm. And so they're all kind of separated out. It's not like you get one big budget for your department and you can save a bit on, I don't know, we're not going to buy anyone pens this year. They can all buy their own or we'll get them from drug reps. And then we'll put that money back into something else. It's like, this is your allocation for stationery. This is your allocation for staffing. This is your allocation for estates. So when I say estates, it could be like decoration and, all of the it must it must actually be to be fair it must being anyone that has to do procurement in the, in the national health service must be an absolute minefield because just where do you allocate that money i mean you just have to try and look and mm. such a broad picture don't you all of the time to see where you, that that really is going to have well, a have major bid, impact you have to bid for money quite often so it will be like the government will say oh there's a pot of money and all the hospital you then have to put a case together so like why you should be the person to get a share of that money and then you'll get so an example when it was like winter bed pressures happens every year everywhere but so all of a sudden instead of waiting in the summer thinking right we know in three months we're going to be short beds they wait until mm. Christmas and it'd be like Christmas Eve. Oh, if you put a case in now, you might get some money for an extra staff. Lack of it kind of, oh, it kind of takes me back to, and it, this, this is a problem that's been around for years, of course, because <coughs> it kind of takes me back to when I was a boy um, listening to not the long time ago. News. Yeah. A long time ago. Um, Cause I really am that old listening to not the nine o'clock news. And there was a sketch. Do you remember they did a sketch where, um, everyone was bidding for a hospital bed 
if if you don't remember that folks you can you can look it up on the internet it's still there on the internet i won't go into the uh ins and outs of it because it's probably a bit politically incorrect um but uh yeah it's, you know it, it kind of made the point like, is it yeah. is it down to money rachel if if there was a if, if suddenly the the chancellor suddenly had a blank checkbook could 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 we buy our way out of these problems or even if there was the money are there still fundamental issues under that around the size of the organization and the way it's organized would that still would a blank checkbook and still not fully resolve everything in your opinion i think you need the innovative leadership to say we can't just do things the same way we've always done them so mm. like does all care really need to be given in hospital how much care could be given in a different setting whether that yeah. setting is for example say like there aren't enough nursing home beds yeah. like could a hospital hire a hotel like i live in a seaside area so like could the hospital hire a hotel for the winter you know you've got winter pressures hire a hotel have 10 nurses there for example and those people who are not ill enough to be in hospital but not well enough to be home alone they could be cared for there rather than an acute setting you know like what different things could we do but you need people with the sort of foresight to think we're doing the same thing we're battling the same thing every year and unless we change something nothing is going to change and for example it's much safer to give chemo to patients at home but that mm, means that okay. you need more chemo nurses you know because if you've got 10 patients having chemo on a ward you can have a couple of nurses there going up and down, making sure everyone's all right, not having a reaction. But if you're going to go and give it to someone in the home, that means you're going to go and you need that nurse to sit with them for the day, for example, if so it's their first dose. So, yeah, but then you sort of weigh up the cost of how much is a hospital bed day per day. So, I mean, I'm going back to the figures when I was there, so a few, a few years ago now, but like a normal hospital bed would be like £400 a night. That's just the cost of a bed stay. And then an ITU bed would be like a lot more. So when you think about it that way, then that sort of accounts for nursing. That doesn't account for the drug cost or all of the other stuff that goes with it. That's just sort of basic cost per patient per night. And if you yeah. look at that in terms of A&E as well, you know, since COVID, GPs have been more and more inaccessible. That means more people go to A&E than need to because they could have in the before. I'm going to say in the old days. That makes me sound really old. Yeah. <laughs> I, in I'm the good say, old days, you went to the I, GP, I, didn't you? Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, look, I'm, I, I want to talk about how this has an impact upon uh, everything that's done within the kind of health and wellness sector because, and, and you know, I wonder whether companies are going to need to start taking up more of the office for or ownership of their employees' well-being because can can the state provision actually deal with it long term? You know, I mean, it, I I just wonder whether we aren't on without you know sounding a bit dramatic, but I do wonder whether we are on the the, the sort of verge of another sort of pandemic in if you like not not caused this time by a virus but caused by a sort of lack of infrastructure or lack of money because 
I know for a fact from, you know, uh, the, the dental profession, for example, they're struggling, you know, the, a lot of the dentists out there or dental practices out there, they're struggling to get dentists through at the moment. You, you can't, you can't find a, a qualified dentist for love nor money. Um, you've, you've got nurses on, on a minimum wage, which means that a lot of them are deciding to go elsewhere and, and not come into the profession. Uh, I know from conversations that I've had with pharmacists, for example, that and I've seen the figures lately, a lot of the national farm pharmacists, the, the, the sort of chains, they've, they've rapidly closed stores all over the country. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that, uh, as you said, I mean, I can, I can see from the effects myself in terms of trying to get a hold of uh, medication for both myself and for, for uh, my youngest who has regular medication. You know, it's a struggle now to get hold of some medication and you have to search around to try and find it. Um, where we are in Chard, we've had uh, a couple of doctor surgeries close, even though as a town, it's getting bigger and bigger. I just wonder whether we're, as I say, on the verge of a, a, a sort of medical problem here. And I think, well, definitely. And I think the thing is, if like the NHS staff survey, 80% of staff, and that was the year before, because obviously the results come out kind of a year after, but 80% of staff were burnt out, stressed, had compassion fatigue through working through COVID, you know, seeing more deaths in a short space of time than most people caring for people would see in a lifetime. You know, that has an impact on you, doesn't it? It's, yeah. you know, it's sort of like post traumatic stress um effects that people are going to suffer for a long time and like you said the pay doesn't reflect the work and it's not so much that people go into healthcare for pay because most people go into healthcare because they care but if you're working 50 60 hours a week and you've still got to get food from the food bank and that's a reality you know there's a food bank in our hospital for nurses yeah. Um, so, you know how how is that possibly right and it's definitely not going to make it an attractive career is it because you you need to be able to live you know as much as you want to care for other people you've still got to be able to have a basic cost of living and standard of living and this isn't like people saying I want to go on holiday three times a year this is people like working 60 hours a week who still can't afford to buy school uniforms or the Christmas present. No, exactly. I don't, Stephen, do, do you feel this is going to impact, you know, the the, uh, the the health and well-being sector that you that you know you're involved in as well? I mean, in terms of, surely it means that employers are going to have to think more about their well-being schemes, their uh, employee assistance programs, mm-hmm. in terms of ensuring that you know uh people have access to healthcare schemes or private healthcare schemes etc because ultimately you know if you if you if you're losing your workforce or part of mm. your workforce on a regular basis due to ill health and there's not the provision there nationally or there's yeah. holes in that system and you don't make up that you don't make up the shortfall you're you're gonna you get you're gonna lose that you're, you're gonna be paying for that talent to be at home or mm. ill 
or whatever. And, and no. also, doesn't that become more and more of an attractive proposition for proper talent? I'm going to go and work for someone that's going to take care of my health and well-being. Yeah. I should just say, sorry, apologies. I'm having problems with my camera, hence why if you are watching it live and you're not listening through Spotify, then that's why the camera's off, because it's really frustrating that I'm five or six seconds behind, so apologies about that. I, I think that the thing that sticks in my mind, Graham, and we've referenced this a number of times on this show, there are still organisations out there, large organisations, when it comes to health and well-being, if we, and we can get specifically into the products that we do if we want to, um, who don't look after their computer users, which you know Rachel referenced before about people with twenty-pound chairs and things like that, and it, and actually Rachel and I hadn't had a conversation earlier, but that sort of teed it up quite nicely. I think the problem is there are still organisations out there. I don't think you take it. I don't think you take the health and well-being of their computer users seriously. You know. <laughs> We can get back specifically to product that we do. You know, I don't necessarily want to do that. But as an example, there are still lots of people out there not allocated the right type of equipment, be it a good chair, be it a good desk, be it this, that, and the other that plugs into their laptop. And I think that's where organizations need to get a little bit more serious about this because I think a lot of them still think of it as an unnecessary investment. Why am I going to go and do that? Just crack on with what you've got. And I think whilst companies still do that, you are going to get this sort of pandemic type thing that you referenced there, Graham, that you are going to suddenly start getting in it. Big issues where people for long periods of time will be unable to come into work because of chronic back and neck issues and things like that. And I think until organisations predominantly in the commercial world take it seriously and don't see that investment as just a capex expense, but actually an investment in the health and well-being of their staff, this is still going to be something that we're going to keep coming back around to. Yeah. I, I want to pick up with Rachel. I mean, you've obviously moved into coaching and, and, and coaching sort of leaders. Is, it, is this, to some extent, one of the reasons why you moved into coaching? Because actually, now more than ever, we need really good leaders in business. Yeah, and we need to support leaders to feel confident that they can make sometimes radical decisions, disruptive decisions. And I don't mean disruptive being awkward for the sake of it. I mean, disrupting what we've always done. If we do, I keep saying, if we do what we've always done, we're going to keep getting the same outcome. <laughs> and mm. we can, you know, we all see that year after year, you know, there aren't enough beds, there isn't enough money, we can't access drugs, um, staff. So, like, one of the things Stephen was saying about, you know, back injuries is once a nurse has had a back injury, they're really unlikely to ever fully recover. You know, they're always going to have a weakness. So that person, their duties are going to be affected for the rest of their career. So if you're an early years career nurse, you, you know, lifting a bariatric patient or something, you haven't got the right equipment, you have a serious back injury, that's always going to keep coming back to haunt you throughout your career, isn't it? You're always going to have those that weak spot mm. where you like, you know, go to lean forward, do something, your back goes. So throughout your career, you're going to have multiple sickness absences from that one initial injury because you've got that weak spot. And there isn't, I think you really touched on, you know, like we, it's always a focus on sickness and absence but there isn't any focus on 
preventing that happening in the first place. And I think, you know, more, I keep saying about COVID, but more since the pandemic than ever, we need to look after the people who are looking after us is mental welfare, you know, and emotional welfare. You know, who do they go to to get over all of these things that they've seen that they shouldn't have seen that, you know, we were exposed to on a much, you know, imagine how horrific all of it was for us, but being on the front line and again, not having the right equipment. Yeah, so all of those things, you know, not having um, access to all of those things and, and breaks, you know, and having, like you're saying about computer stations, the re- it, that should be really individualised, shouldn't it? You know, like you can't have, and this is the thing with hot desks, isn't it? They're not really set up mm. for individuals to be um, ergonomically working at a safe sort of place for them. You know, if you've got a hot desk, and that's one of the ways the NHS saved money was like getting rid of, for example, in leadership and management, instead of them all having their own offices, they've got these like big offices, you know, you can work from home two days a week, then you've got to share this desk. So your computer isn't going to be set at the right height for you, is it? Your chair isn't going to be the right chair for you. Well, I just want to ask you that. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. from from your experience, because, you know, it's one of those things where I think even within the industry, Stephen, I think, and this is fair to say, you know, we kind of look at it and say, well, it's fine if somebody has a hot desk because as long as they've got the education piece around adjusting it all prior to them using it, 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 it can work. But the reality is, I think, the reality is how many people have actually got the time when they're really up against it and busy? to make those kind of adjustments i i I, i'm sure the answer is yes but again and you know i'm very keen on this whole time yeah because i just think again unless organizations understand people time and allocate time for those adjustments people just get on you know and the reality reality is like so say for example i'll give you I would go in on a Monday morning, eight o'clock or go in a bit earlier. So straight away, the phone would be ringing with people ringing sick. You know, that's the first thing. Also, nurses and wards would be ringing with, we tried to get this drug at the weekend, we couldn't get it, it's urgent. So your first two hours, maybe three hours would be phone calls, sorting out urgent queries. So you've got no time to You might not have even put your bag down or made a coffee, you know, you'd be straight away on the phone, um, before you've even started your day then you would be going to meetings about bed crisis example you know these patients we need to get out this we can't get this drug we need this you know and that was the same for heads of all departments you know we'd have regular meetings to look at um so turnaround times for hospitals are where the biggest pressure are you know the waiting times in A&E so getting patients out of A&E into a ward or getting them home and that's just constant grind you know so yeah most unless you're very lucky and you've got a remote office you know nobody knows the telephone number for or knows where your door is as soon as you get in as a as a manager leader you've got people that want your attention so yeah you haven't got time to sit and play with your computer and just adjust the screen height and pump your chair up and down and like we said if you haven't even got a decent chair that you can adjust the backrests and stuff. You know, one of the mm. things we did was 
we named <laughs> we put names on the chairs so people of a similar height and size <laughs> yeah kind of go right that chair i know will work for me yeah you know kind of because like obviously yeah so one of the other managers i worked with she was like six foot tall and i'm five foot four so like her chair would be different to mine you know obviously so yeah you know it sounds crazy but labeling those chairs on the back at least you go oh that's karen's chair she's the same height as me um i'm gonna grab that one yeah, but, but you know what I love that, about this conversation yeah. today is yeah. this is this is real from the coal face. Yeah, and I, I just think I, I hope that like several people from the the um, from the sector actually listen to this conversation to, uh, as it goes out and and perhaps comment on it. I think it'd be interesting for you to hear some of the feedback, Rachel, as well, because it's I think it's very very easy to kind of look at what's going on and have have solutions but in a very idealistic bubble when the, as you say the reality is that you know especially when you're involved in an organization that is rushed off its literally rushed off its backside mm. and where people are up against it and actually there's a lack of bodies and there's a you know uh there's a lack of time etc that a lot of the idealism disappears, right? And that, and actually, that's part of part and parcel of the challenge, I guess, to the ergonomic community as well is actually finding ways of actually stepping into those that situation and helping in that situation in realistic ways, yeah. And and being being as kind of innovative as possible to uh, enable the people that are on the ground to be able to to make their life better in any shape or form, but with the chaos going on. Yeah, do, and do I you think understand about, what I'm saying? Think about the other side, which is the patient perspective. So you've got to have these waiting room chairs that are cleanable. You know, you've got to be able to alcohol gel them down and stuff. But, you know, if your 90-year-old nan is sat in A&E in a chair for 10 hours, 12 hours, and it's one of those chairs, you know, like it's like a bus stop chair, you you wouldn't you rather that they could be sat comfortably, you know, while they're waiting in pain rather than just perched on a really plastic horrible chair yeah it goes so much broader doesn't it you know mm. when i first started we had the nice fab i say nice <laughs> you know but, I mean, <laughs> they, were like, they, they had a little bit of cushioning and fabric and then obviously as you know viruses and bugs have evolved we had to have vinyl when it had to be able to be cleaned and high high temperature etc so that yep. takes away some of the comfort but you know you've you must have been to a hospital outpatients or an a and e where it's like a bus bus station row of chairs and they're really like hard I, do you know what? i've actually supplied room. i've supplied a lot of seating to uh doctors and hospital situations over the years and i and it it was interesting actually doing that part of doing that just how little uh the the process of what was needed had been talked through by some suppliers that's what that's again you know i think i think that's where suppliers 
do can make a massive difference. Are, are you actually walking the the people that you're supplying to through the whole process and actually kind of uh, coming up with the questions for them as well? Are you so? I mean, I can remember going into sort of hospital areas and saying, you know, you haven't got a mix in here in terms of sizing of seating, for example, right? Yeah, you've got you've got nowhere for for um, anyone that's smaller to sit. You've got nowhere for children to sit equally. You've got no bariatric seating. There's not mm. a single chair in here which somebody of a certain weight would be able to sit on without breaking it. And right. Rachel made a really interesting point, Graham, before where she was saying about people of similar height sharing chairs. And I, I don't know whether it crossed your mind, but the, and I think Andrew Shepherd, who's been on before from Flock, has spoken about this, is about just because people are the same height, the potential difference in leg length and therefore suitability of the chair changes, doesn't it? So, again, it, it's that even having people of the same height doesn't mean that the chair is going to work for them and be any more or less comfortable um, because it's it, there's so many different factors that need to be considered just for seating that maybe aren't necessarily considered or people are aware that you can't just go five foot six this chair five foot nine that chair i i used to get asked it all the time people would say that people even within occupational health would actually say to me um how tall are they and i'd go well that's irrelevant isn't it because uh you know you need to know, getting technical, you need to know what their mid-popoletal length is and their lower popoletal length. If, if you don't know sort of from behind the buttock to behind the knee and from behind the knee to the floor what length they are, you, you don't know whether or not they're going to be sat at the right height because mm. you could have a very long body. <laughs> you could have yeah. quite short upper leg um, and that completely changes the way you sit. So it, the, the the chair elements of the chair have to be adjust have to be adjustable. Stroke have to be different types of sizing in order to accommodate different people with different sort of size limbs. And it's yeah, you know, so it's, it's a really tricky. It's, it's a it's, minefield, isn't it? It, it yeah, is a minefield. Ideal, ideally, you'd have you know have a chair for each person. Everybody. So we, I had to do a funding case, for example. So. We did get chairs, individual chairs for everyone who had an office. But again, you know, people steal your chair, or you get a load of coats on it that gets taken somewhere <laughs> else and it yeah. gets lost. But originally did a funding case. So anyone at office space had their own chair, which was, you know, tailored to them. And then for the workstations, we had to do the best we could to get a variety of some people have higher chairs, some people having the lower chairs, and making sure they were adjustable. And again, making sure in the dispensary, for example, that they were wipe cleanable because, you know, you've got to people coming in and out from the wards with infections and bugs on them. You need to be able to keep cleaning those chairs. So, we, you know, they have to have the leather type chairs. They're called, I don't know if you have a saddle chair. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like those ones where you could get them back. And again, some people like the backless chairs where they could just hop on the seat bit and slide up to the computer and, type away and then other people wanted a backrest so you know it wasn't as simple as like oh here's somebody order 80 chairs yeah, it no. was really assessing like what what met the needs and like you said you could have possibly 
meet the needs of every member of staff. So like 80 staff to try and get the right chair for every person. is, And then there's, by the time you've got the funding and the money's come through, some of those people are left You've got somebody else coming. So I love it. Yeah, this is a, this is a very real conversation. Uh, just a little aside there. Uh, it reminded me of something, which is um, and this I don't know whether you've ever heard this, Stephen, but um, mm. coats on the backs of chairs. Any, yeah. Any ergonomics companies out there that are listening to this will know this, uh, and and will be laughing uh, or crying as I tell you this, but. Um, <laughs> You know, one of the things that a lot of people in organisations always like to do was to put their their coat on the back of their chair, partly because, I mean, it's a, you know, it's a place to put it. Secondly, because it would identify that that's your chair. And then when you got off of it, everybody else would know it's your chair. However, the majority of uh, modern um, operator chairs, the adjustment in the back of the chair in terms of back height is done uh, on a ratchet system. Yeah. Um, yeah, that the problem with putting your coat or or even your jacket on the back of a chair is that uh, the amount of calls that I've been to over the years where someone said my, my the back of my chair is broken, right? It keeps slipping, and the reason being is as you sit on the chair with your coat on the back, um, the the ratchet the way it works is that it kind of ratches up on notches, and then when it gets to the top it slips off of the ratchet and goes back down so you can then readjust it. But when you sit with a coat on the back, you keep pulling on that ratchet. Yeah. So what, so yeah. what happens is with time, you move the back of the chair up and then it drops down because <laughs> you're actually activating the ratchet. And it means that people think that the back's broken. And and the, the, the amount of times... common, common yeah, thing. We the amount manufacturers would either send us a new bit or come in someone would come in and service all our chairs once a year like mm. like I said most service all your chairs and actually they probably didn't need to because probably what it was is that people are sitting with coats or jackets on the back <laughs> and actually yeah. if you tell them to take them off and put them somewhere else uh you'll find that the, the ratchet <laughs> stay in place as well so like part of cost saving costs was like removing tea rooms and removing cloak rooms so you would be shoving yeah. your bag under your desk and your coat on the back of your chair exactly because that. the locker rooms no longer existed because a locker room would be turned into i don't know like in pharmacy a room for manufacturing or you know on a ward you know so even like you know like nurses used to have a every ward used to have a patient's day room where they could all go watch telly etc and then you'd have a nurse's staff room so they could just go and have the lunch somewhere quiet for five minutes if they were lucky uh, and, you know, be uninterrupted. But as more and more bed space was required, you had to look at the estate of your hospital and go, right, if we take this, we need to change this room into a clinic room or a treatment room or, you know, an extra bathroom, for example. So you lost that space. So those things, well, it's like fine to say, it's not very good for your chair and imagine you know you've walked in so again most hospitals haven't got on-site parking for staff anymore because parking is such a big issue that you need to make the parking available for patients so a lot of hospitals outsource and get a parking off-site so if it's raining and you've walked to work in the rain and you've got a wet coat 
it's going to go straight on the back of your chair you know yeah. that's the reality of and also then wow. you might have in your chair a spare jumper or a spare cardigan or something to change into when you get to work knowing that you're going to be wet so you're probably slung that on your chair as well you know i could i could probably say my chair used to have like two cardigans a coat and probably a spare set of scrubs hanging underneath it because again if i had to start off sick then i would go to the wards and generally if i was going to like if i was doing management duties i could wear what i wanted mm. but just out of one so you're identifiable to go onto the wards would just put a set of scrubs on and also for infection control you know it would be it's better for patients that they just know you're from pharmacy or they know you're a nurse for example and then also you can take that off when you get back in and you can sling it in the high temperature wash even, even things like been... that you know like there's so there is literally so much that you don't I know. I think, I think this has been an absolutely brilliant conversation today. And I, I, I tell you what it highlights as well. Um, it highlights actually something that I was talking to um, an economist that actually gets involved in that during the week, Stephen, which is that it, mm. it highlights even more the reason why uh, human factors, stroke economists, uh, experts need to get involved in design of offices yeah and processes uh as much as anything else as well as the education piece as well as the provision piece because you know all of this stuff that that we that rachel's talking about now you know this space is now being used for this space because of this etc if 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 the right people were involved in those conversations in the first place who actually understand people and how people need to work rather than let's make this space look pretty oh i'll tell you what why don't we have one of those things over there then actually you'd have you'd get the solution right from the start mm. yeah because this stuff is complex it really yeah. is complex but look and at look how rachel's led this conversation with talking about the chairs and the right and all that sort of thing the car parking they're all sort of one thing leads to another that leads to another that has an impact yep. on someone's health and well-being, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, you wouldn't Absolutely. think when I started off my career in pharmacy, got into like that when I was a senior leader, I'd be doing projects on chairs. <laughs> or yeah. do you know what I mean? Like you wouldn't have thought, no, oh, that's, that's what a enough, pharmacy leader does. She's doing a project to make sure all her stuff got the right chairs or they've got the right uniforms, for example. Even you know, everything that you purchase, you've got yep. to justify the price you know you've got to justify the need um so like you know other medical equipment so in pharmacy for example all the measures you know although we don't make a lot of stuff but having measuring cylinders that can be washed at high temperatures and having um triangles to count drugs on you know again not so much now because you've got robots and a lot of stuff you don't it comes in packs already made up but there are mm. still things that you have to count out and that's never going to go away Having, mm. um, like, do you have, like, in surgery, like, disposable scalpels, or do you have things that could go for an autoclave? You know, when I started, there was a whole autoclave room, so all the bottles would be go through, um, you know, cleaned at really high temperature and reused. But there's also a whole, you were talking about um, estates and purchasing, etc. There's also this whole other side 
in hospitals where they sell off all of the old scraps. So like if you have your pipes replaced, you know, that the people in the estates, they will be making sure that they're complying with environmental guidelines and sort of do, can we reuse things? Can we sell can we sell things for scrap? Can we get money and bring it back in that way? So as well as getting rid of all your medical waste, you've got all the buildings waste. You know, if you knock down a wall, where's all that stuff going to go? Who's going to yeah. pick it up? Who's going to take it away? So it's literally, it's like, like you said, you need people, you need people delivering the healthcare, like healthcare specialists, but you also need people that have the expertise to run a business. Mm. But those people need to have empathy. If they haven't got any empathy, then you're screwed as a person trying to run a department because they don't understand that it's not just about money. You know, yeah. for us, patients have always got to come first and their care. So it's not as black and white as cutting here and doing this. It's it's got it's got to be about the cost to human life as well as the cost of the bank account. Yeah. But I do agree, you do need that expertise, people who know how to deal with money. And traditionally, those people, directors on boards, hospital boards would be doctors, surgeons, people who got to the top of the chain and then they went onto the board. So I think you need a mix. You need like clinical people and then you need some people who've got business acumen who know how mm. to deal with all the different things. But the NHS is evolving all the time. Is that, you know, how does anyone keep up with the level of expertise to negotiate at that level for the... And you're talking, you know, you're talking billions of pounds, aren't you? You're talking like we are. Um, little I bits think, of money. I think we could, I think we could go on and on on this subject, but we've run out of time. So thank you, Rachel, for coming in today. That's okay. And it so wasn't me. I haven't done one yeah. talking about um, chairs and things before. <laughs> that's, oh no! That's well, thank you, thank you so much for coming in. Um, yeah, really and enjoyed it. Thank you. Um, and uh, for, folks, if you've been listening today, uh, and you know, I. It's food for thought. Um, there's a lot that uh, there to mm. unpack, but uh, I'd certainly love to hear your your thoughts and comments. Of course, you can catch up on previous episodes of this as well at wowergonomics.com. Uh, until same time next week, um, thanks for listening and um, bye for now. <laughs>